Welcome to Renovate, the young adult ministry of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We are for all young adults. Whether you're far from God or walking close to Him, we believe that our God fully knows us and fully loves us. So instead of leaving us as He finds us, He is constantly and graciously renovating our lives so we can look more like Him. Enjoy this week's message. Amen. Praise God. Thank y'all so much. How are y'all tonight? Good. Love it. Love that you're here. Excited to get to worship with you. Excited to get to preach um, with you and, and kind of walk through a conversation that's uh, been a pretty big part of my story. So my name is Ben. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I'm uh, one of the pastors here and uh, love that you're in this room. Love that you're worshiping. I love what Brooke said. We're a very imperfect ministry. We are a room full of broken people, but God doesn't leave us that way. We really believe in a God who is in the business of taking broken things, uh, broken minds, broken hearts, shame, things that, things that uh, don't line up with, with him and fixing them and restoring them and bringing restoration. So that's what this is about. We are in a series right now in Renovate this, uh, this semester where we've really been stepping into doubts. And so kind of each month, the first Wednesday of the month, we'll step into a different doubt, a different question behind our faith. Uh, why does God um, allow suffering was one. Uh, what, what do I do with God when it doesn't feel like he, um, he's ever for me? All of these, these questions that we have. Um, and we want to be a community of people that is okay with doubts, that isn't scared of doubts. It doesn't feel like we have to fake it until we make it but we're able to take our doubts, take good questions we have of God, of faith, of community, and bring them to God rather than just being a community where we think, oh man, there's something I don't believe, there's a question I have, there's a doubt I have, I'm just gonna hide it, I'm just gonna fake it, I'm just gonna sing along and pretend that everything is fine um, rather than bringing those doubts. And so tonight, uh, specifically, we're gonna talk about the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ is something that really was doctrine for me uh, when I was a young adult that really made me take a step back from my faith, honestly. And I've shared this story actually in January in the sermon when we kind of stepped into this whole idea of having a sermon series based on doubts. And it's the claim that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that there is no other way to salvation. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to have restoration between what is broken between us and our creator who has designed us to be in relationship except through the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And, and I've shared before that that really um, was something I struggled with. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, grew up in Dallas, Texas in the Bible Belt. Uh, grew up going to church. Um, was heavily involved in church and got involved in um, ministries pretty early on and young life and did all kinds of churchy things. When I was 18, I graduated high school and I moved overseas to do missions work. And so when I was 18, I lived in Moscow, Russia. And when I was in Moscow, Russia, I remember I had gone from the Bible belt in my little Christian bubble into now living in Moscow, functionally by myself as an 18 year old, um, sharing Christ, sharing my faith, what I believed uh, with a whole bunch of other people. And, and I started doing life and living with all these people who were, were atheists or agnostics, uh, Buddhists and Hindu and, and Muslim community that we had uh, started to connect with in Moscow. And so I started to go from this kind of bubble that I was in for 18 years of, of my faith kind of being incubated to all of a sudden now 
in this melting pot of a whole bunch of other faiths. Even the Christians I knew had all these different denominations. There was a lot of Eastern Orthodox and Catholic and people that I wasn't used to those denominations and even some of the doctrine that they have. And I remember specifically, I remember specifically there as a missionary to share Jesus with these people, I remember thinking, man, how convenient. And, and that kind of cynicism just started to wash over me and I couldn't shake it. How convenient that the one way to God, right? The one path, the exclusive path to our creator to restore what is broken between us and our God just happens to be the way that I was born into in the South, in good old America, um, just happens to be the faith of my grandparents and my parents. And I'm interacting with all these people that Christianity is not a part of their lifestyle. They didn't grow up being served that. And I just remember thinking, how convenient is that? That that just happens to be my way. And so the idea of me just stumbling upon, the idea of that, that coincidence really made me step back and really wonder and deconstruct, why do I believe what I believe? This relationship I have with the God of the universe through Christ, is this really the only way? Does that seem arrogant? Does that seem mean of a God? And how narrow have I just kind of been drinking the Kool-Aid, right? And I, I remember thinking, um, it would probably be like if you, um, stay with me for a second on this illustration, it'd be like if you were born in Philadelphia and you happen to be an Eagles fan, right? You're an Eagles fan and uh, your grandparents an Eagles fan, your dad's an Eagles fan. You don't know it's a horrible team, Right? You don't know it's the worst fan base in the world, right? You just were born into it, and you just go about your life ignorantly thinking the Eagles are a good team when they're awful, and they're a horrible team to root for, right? And I felt that way, right? I felt like, okay, what am I doing? I had never really questioned. I had a relationship with God. I genuinely did. I genuinely believe my faith started way before even some of these intellectual ideas, but I didn't know it was safe to. And so I really started to wrestle with that. And it was this idea of, is Jesus really the only way? That seems really narrow. What about all these people? They grew up not drinking the Kool-Aid of Jesus that I did. And so I really started to dig into that. And that's where we're going, right? If you have never questioned Right? If you, maybe faith came easy to you and that was a gift from God, you shouldn't feel embarrassed about that. You shouldn't feel embarrassed by that. But maybe that's a question. You've never really zoomed in and thought, man, why do I believe in the exclusivity of Christ? And do I? And is there logic and thoughtfulness? And is there good answers to tough questions behind some of these questions? And maybe you've never asked that. Praise God that you're here. I think it's good. I think it's healthy. And I think if answered properly, it should produce deep worship. And maybe you are here in this room or you're watching or you're listening uh, to this sermon and that's exactly where you are. And you're in that place that I was thinking, why do I believe? Do we just believe because everyone else believes and this is the community we're a part of. I love that you're here also. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dive in and we're gonna answer uh, just a few questions that I I think lead to each other. They're gonna start very intellectual. There's a lot of intellectual hurdles, I think, to the idea of exclusivity of Christ. But I think also there's some emotional hurdles as well. So we'll walk through that and then Uh, Lord willing, we'll step back into worship and hopefully, Lord willing, uh, the worship will be sweeter, uh, sweeter than ever. First question as we dive into this is the question I had to ask, does the Bible actually say Jesus is the exclusive way? And there's a lot of people who would say it it doesn't. And so really the idea of exclusivity of Jesus doesn't actually come from the Bible, which we here in this ministry would say this is our authority. And so is the exclusivity of Jesus even biblically accurate is the first question. And let me kind of unpack some, some biblical evidence for that and kind of show us where we see that. Uh, John 14, 
John 14, verse 6 says this. This is Jesus, and it's him in the garden. It's um, the night before he's arrested. He's telling his disciples in John 14. It's kind of his, his last evening before his crucifixion. And so he's saying some pretty important stuff in John 14 and John 15. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, with his disciples, makes an exclusive claim about who he is and his deity and him being the only way to, uh, to the Father. Acts 4, we see also the disciples who walked with Jesus, they also profess this in Acts 4. As they profess the gospel and they're teaching other people what they were taught in their time walking with Jesus. Acts 4, verse 11 and 12 says... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Jesus was rejected by you, the builders, and now Jesus has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then even Paul in 1 Timothy, he says also, for there is one God, in Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. All throughout scripture, we see this idea, even in the Old Testament, right? But before the name of Jesus is, is mentioned, we see in the Old Testament uh, what's called, scholars call it the red, the scarlet line of, of redemption or the scarlet line of salvation, that we see Jesus all throughout, throughout the Old Testament. We see God's redemptive story all throughout the Old Testament in these very narrow, winnowing ways. God chose not to save everyone. God said, I'm going to raise up Abraham. I'm going to raise up a people. I'm going to, I'm going to raise up a prophet. I'm going to raise up a king. And so, so God does this winnowing and narrowing to reveal himself all throughout history, Old Testament, and then obviously and ultimately in the person of Jesus. Um, the gospel, we believe, is what saves us. The gospel of Jesus is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That his death, burial, and resurrection, that he lived the perfect life, that we are called to live, but every one of us in this room, every one of us listening comes up short. He lived that life, was perfect, was sinless, was God in the flesh, living a perfect life, and then he suffered the consequences for our sin, died, however, was raised again. And now, for those who put their faith in him, he intercedes on their behalf and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. That's what we believe. That is by the grace of Jesus and no other that we're able to have access to our creator, to our father, to the one who ultimately restores what's broken. Let me compare this real quick with just some other religions. So quickly, uh, I'm going to talk about Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, I'm going to talk about those three, mainly because those are the, the, the most popular four religions in the world are those. Christianity makes up about 32% of the global population. Uh, Islam makes up about 23% of the global population. Hinduism and Hindus make up about 15%. And then Buddhists make up about 7% of the population, and there's about 15 to 17 people who would categorize themselves as non-religious. So I want to talk, if we're talking about exclusivity, I want to talk about what are some of the other paths. Islam. Salvation in Islam is based on a person's work before God, specifically based on them doing more good than bad. Now, Islam wouldn't say that we are inherently evil, right? They wouldn't even say, we get up here and say, hey, we're broken people. We acknowledge the level of we, we have not arrived, we're not spiritual enough. We, our default setting is actually to worship ourselves, to not make God the king, to 
the songs we sing where we declare, man, this is you, you are king, you are God, that's, that's not our default setting. That's a position that we have to fight to get our heart into. Islam would say, no, no, everyone is actually inherently good. However, you're not entered into uh, paradise. You aren't entered into salvation uh, unless you do more good than bad. So kind of like a scale. In fact, exactly like a scale. In the Quran, I have a copy here. Um, in the book of Surah, which is the 27th book, in, in verses 102 through 104, uh, this is what, this is what uh, Islam would, would treat as their authoritative text. This is what it says, 102 through 104 in the book of Surah. Then those whose balance, so think of this idea of you're, gonna, you're only going to have salvation if you outweigh your good to your bad. Then those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls. In hell, they will abide. Uh, the fire will burn their face and they will therein grin with their lips displaced. And so Islam has this uh, very clear, it's very clear in their authoritative texts if the scales are balanced in your favor, right? If you do more good, then you'll enter into salvation. And if you don't do more good, then you will enter into eternal hell. And so we see kind of this idea of that's what salvation looks like for them, was doing more good than more bad. Uh, Hinduism, uh, they believe uh, there's really three ways, and it's evolved over time, uh, but they believe there's three ways to enter into salvation. Uh, the way of works, uh, which is really, uh, think of karma, right? The idea of karma, that again, doing good, uh, out, outweighing the good in your life versus the bad, um, so that hopefully then when you um, reach uh, the end, uh, karma is in your favor and would grant you salvation. But also the way of knowledge is another path that they then later developed, um, and the way of knowledge is less of a focus on the material things that you do or give away and more about an enlightening and, uh, and, and in tune with kind of a spiritual reality that you're tapping into this idea again that you um, are actually uh, perfectly designed. You just need to tap into Brahman, which is the principal God in the Hindu faith and that it's more of an enlightenment thing and you need to study and meditate on those things and hopefully then reach that place. Uh, and then also the way of devotion is the third path that was developed uh, by Hindus. And, and that path is the idea of um, being devoted and worshiping and making sacrifices to specific gods. And there, there are many gods. There's over 33 million gods in the Hindu faith. And so choosing several of those gods and maybe as a family, you worship both publicly and privately and you hope that you've worshiped correctly or you hope that you've gotten enlightened through the way of knowledge or you hope that you've done more good than bad. And so there's kind of three ways to kind of hedge your bet uh, in Hinduism to be able to reach that, that place. And then uh, the last, at least major world religion uh, is Buddhism. And they would make the claim that again, we are in fact perfect, uh, which is very different than what our scriptures would say, but that we are actually default perfect, complete. We're infinite beings. Um, and we must simply just tap into that reality, right? That we have ultimately already arrived. And when we do that, we will ultimately then arrive in nirvana, which is their, uh, their kind of salvation spot. Um, interestingly enough, Buddhism really doesn't focus a lot on salvation. Uh, Buddhism doesn't focus uh, on salvation as much as it does. It was created to really help people deal with suffering. And so Buddha really was less about, hey, here's how you get to the afterlife, which is what a lot of other religions obviously do. And more about, 
Here's how you deal with the extreme poverty of the world you live in and how you deal with suffering is more about this idea of finding this inner peace and tapping into uh, kind of this perfection that's there and nirvana being the end goal. It's also a really hard thing to attain in in this faith. And so uh, the the idea of reincarnation plays into effect with Buddhism uh, a lot because it's the idea of, well, maybe you don't get there in this lifetime, but if you do good in this lifetime and you make some steps, uh, then to simplify when you're reincarnated, maybe you're reincarnated and you're that much closer, right? There's a whole caste system that comes into play too. And so maybe you're that much closer. And so then maybe in that lifetime, you'll be able to reach there uh, and be able to reach nirvana at that, at that point. So you have these major world religions that all have very different kind of ladders of how to get to salvation or nirvana or, or how to reach Allah. Uh, you also have non-religious people. You've got atheists who are going to make a claim uh, if they're a true atheists that man, this is it. Right? This is the world. This is what we have. This is reality. There is no designer behind this. Uh, this is a cosmic accident. Um, and if you throw enough rocks at each other over millions of years and billions of chances that eventually life can happen. And so when we die, that's it. This is just a, a, a series of evolution and evolve, evolvements. And there isn't anything after this. But then you've also got a whole category of non-religious people or non-religious seekers or maybe agnostics or just people who are very honestly and I would say and affirm very thoughtfully trying to figure out, okay, what do I believe? What, how do I think, what do I think the purpose of this is? How do I get there, wherever that is? What am I designed to be connected to it? And how does this work? And they're very consciously and thoughtfully trying to wrestle, trying to weigh the options and trying to explore those things. Um, I, I want to set that up because I think that's important context uh, to really show some clarity around this Christian doctrine. Having those other worldviews, having those other religions and even non-religious seekers and non-religious atheists in mind, I think puts in view what the exclusivity of Christ means and how remarkably unique it is. Christianity makes this unique claim about God, about Christ, about salvation. And there's three kind of clear facets to this doctrine. That unique claim about God and salvation, one, It shows that you can't earn, you can't earn it, and you can't save yourself, right? Unique to all of those other world religions is this idea that you can't earn it. You cannot do enough good deeds. We would believe in Christianity, and and our book that we would say is authoritative would say, hey, you can't tip the scales in your favor. Come to renovate as much as you want. Come to church. Do quiet times and make sure you post them on Instagram so people know, so Jesus can see them, right? Like, you do all the good deeds you want. And, and Christianity would still say, this doctor would still say, you're still going to come up short because of the holiness of our God and the inherent nature of our sin, that you can't do it on your own, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 1 says, that no one is good, no, not one, that the penalty of that is death. Ephesians 2, this idea that you are dead in your sin and in your trespasses. But then also this idea that God had to fully rescue his people. And so inherent within not only this idea that we can't do it, we cannot rescue, we cannot tip the scales or meditate long enough or learn enough things, we can't do it, is also the idea that God has to fully save us. That Ephesians 2 passage I just talked about, you are dead in your trespasses, fully dead, right? Not half dead, fully dead, but God, in his kindness, he comes and he brings salvation to us. We see that all throughout scripture, that God had to fully rescue his people. And then third, we see this idea, this doctrine that Jesus is God. He is God in flesh. 
He is the incarnation of our creator who entered into our broken world and therefore the only possible rescuer. The only one who could have rescued us because we can't do it ourselves. We can't find a prophet good enough or a pastor good enough or a church or a list of rules good enough. Every other religion is going to have a ladder to be able to climb. Every other worldview is going to give you a system to say, how can you climb yourself to God? How can you get to salvation? How can you get to him? Do these things, don't do those things, and you will get there. Paul in scripture says, even my good deeds, on my best days, my good deeds are still filthy rags. They don't add up to that, which would be a complete downer if it wasn't for the incredible grace of God that says, I don't need your filthy rags. I don't need your good deeds. I fully love you. I fully accept you. Through Christ and Christ alone, you are completely mine and completely loved. It's so counterintuitive to everything else, even in our world, of our desire to control things, to give me a system, give me a metric of how I know I'm doing my job good so I can know when I get a promotion or, or know when I achieve what I'm supposed to achieve so that I can work hard enough and, and take these things and get these grades and get this GPA and get this job and get, give me the checklist. And, and the gospel comes in and is completely counterintuitive to that. And it makes the teaching of Christ and the Christian faith really unique and also inherently exclusive since it's based on this concept of our utter dependence on God for our salvation, not ourselves to earn it. Okay, you tracking with me? Good, good. I'll take your silence as a resounding yes. Two hurdles that stick out, right? If we unpack the, the data of worldviews and the uniqueness of Christianity and the claim of the exclusiveness of Christ, I still think there's two pretty big hurdles, certainly for me, that I have wrestled with uh, and I think... Honestly, I think every believer should at least at some point wrestle with or at least engage with these thoughts. The first one is if Jesus is the only way, if we believe Jesus is the only way, isn't that incredibly arrogant? Right? Like for Christians, isn't it incredibly arrogant for us as Christians to say we have the market cornered? Oh, you were born in India? Right, so odds are you are not even exposed, right? You don't have a church on your corner. You're not exposed constantly to vacation Bible schools and, you know, Jesus radio and, and Wednesday night church services, right? Oh, you're born in those countries that, that aren't close to the gospel, that don't have that? Well, Jesus is the only way. Isn't that incredibly arrogant? Um, and I, I, think, I think there's a couple things I would say to that, right? I think for one, that's a, a really valid question. And certainly that was a place I got to early on in my faith in my early 20s, um, Here's the idea. The idea that um, I should reject an exclusive claim because it's exclusive um, is, is going to come back and, and bite me. And here's what I mean. Um, if, if I look at Christ's exclusive claim and I say, man, that is arrogant and uh, that authoritative arrogance is a huge turnoff um, and I reject the exclusivity of Christ, that itself is an authoritatively exclusive claim. Uh, let me explain it this way. If I say, Christians, you guys think there's only one way to God that's so narrow-minded, so selfish, so arrogant, there's lots of ways to God, right? There's lots of paths and they can all get there and you guys need to get off your high horse and there's lots of paths. That sentiment is itself an exclusive claim. I can't make that sentiment in saying lots of paths lead to heaven without making an exclusive claim and claiming 
arrogantly that I have authority and perspective that you don't. And so the pushback, right, the pushback of, I think, a thoughtful world, right, I don't want to villainize them, I think it's a really thoughtful question to say, well, man, that just seems really arrogant that you could be that authoritative and say that you know the only way. Well, to reject that is an authoritative claim, right? And, and that itself is kind of this irony, right? The irony of inclusivism is that inclusivism, everybody's welcome into heaven, is an absolutely exclusive and, and authoritatively arrogant claim. And so it's not just what feels good, it's what is intellectually consistent. And so if we claim we want to be intellectually consistent, let's be intellectually consistent and look at the data. Um, now, let's say the argument, though, behind Christian arrogance, maybe you mask it in intellectual uh, and an intellectual argument, but let's say really it's because you're just turned off by smug Christians. I think for that, my only answer is I'm sorry, genuinely. Because I think the idea of a, a non-believing world, oftentimes looking at the church, who's called to represent a gracious king who saved me despite my ability to save myself, rescued me, saved me in his grace. And to look at a church and, or a, a people of God and to see an arrogance about us in our posture, that can be a huge turnoff to the world around us. A pastor once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who profess Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And I think that should be massively convicting. And I think a lost world that says, man, how arrogant of Christians to think that, how how dare them make such an exclusive and authoritative claim. Um, I think intellectually that argument doesn't hold up, but I think the baggage is still there and is still really valid and it's still something that if you're a believer in this room, you have to wrestle with. What is your posture? If Christ is the only way, what is your posture? Is, is Christ being the only way something that you are so massively eager to share? So massively eager to share. I remember, um, I've told this story in Renovate before, but it's been a couple of years. My cousin worked at a coffee shop. He was in a Christian band. Again, we were all Christian family, Christian band, Christian music, Christian TV, um, uh, I wasn't homeschooled, but it was close. Um, and so, uh, and so he was in this Christian band and he was, he was working at a Starbucks with another really, um, uh, really public Christian, right? They were both in this Christian kind of worship band thing together. And they worked with a girl who wasn't a believer and she was another barista at the Starbucks and, uh, and they just become friends, right? They worked together and they were, they, you know, they were really trying to be super kind to this girl and they were doing a good job of that. And they just become really good friends with this girl who was a self-professed atheist or at least an agnostic and said, ah, maybe there's a guy, but I don't really know um, if I know him or if he can be known. And so they become friends. Well, one day in the Starbucks, a guy comes in and he's like sharing the gospel, right? He's ordering coffee and he gets in a conversation with this, this girl, the barista, and he's like, oh man, let me tell you the gospel and da, da, da. And he starts really laying it on thick and starts talking about you're going to hell, right? Like you are gonna go to hell if you don't believe this, right? Like Jesus is the only way and you're doomed to hell without this. And she's like, whoa, dude, I'm just giving this guy a latte and he's telling me I'm spending eternity in hell and what's going on and there's all this tension and they're like, oh my gosh, what's happening, you know? And, and it's this real tense thing. Um, well, it really shakes her up, right? It really shakes her up and they can just tell the rest of the shift she's really shaken up and they all go their separate ways and they're kind of thinking about it and talking about it and like praying for her. Um, so the next time they're working a shift together, she comes in and they're kind of curious in the back of their mind, man, she was really processing that, that you know, pretty blunt hell conversation. 
she comes in and she is beaming, smiling. She's happy, like light as a feather, like she left real burdened, but now she's like not at all. And they're thinking, okay, okay, see what's going on here. And they're like, hey, what's going on? What, what's up? What's up with the, you know, the happiness and all that stuff? And think about what that guy said and where'd you land on all that? And she goes, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, man, I thought about it for a while and I was really torn up. And then I realized, I'm not going to hell. I don't need God. That, that's not true. I, there's no way I'm going to hell. And then she said, because if I was going to hell, you guys would have already told me that. And we've been friends for over a year. And for them, their stomachs just sank. Because they'd been friends for this girl for a year. They'd been praying for her and about her. But they'd never shared the boldness and the exclusivity of without Christ, you're treading water. You're without Christ, you're under the water. Christ is our only hope. And they hadn't shared that. And that for her became a false confidence of that guy's got to be some crazy Christian who thinks I need Jesus. Because if I really needed Jesus, you guys who are my genuine friends would have shared me. And I think, I think, I remember him telling me that story. And I think about that often. And I think about the conviction that comes along with that. If you're a believer in this room, do we really believe it? Are we really on fire to share it with other people? And I think the lost world around us, if you're in this room and you're not sure, I I think for maybe good reason, you've seen people who say they're Christians, say that they believe Jesus is the only way, but they don't live that out. They certainly aren't bold in professing what is theoretically their only hope. And so I think that becomes a massive hurdle. Our posture as Christians becomes a hurdle if, if you are hung up on that. All I can say, all I can say if that's a hurdle for you is I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't stiff arm the God of the universe because of Christians who didn't do a good job representing him. And that's going to be the rest of your life. That's going to be everything. But don't stiff arm a God who is designed to bring restoration to your life because of hypocrisy that you've seen in just imperfect followers of him. Hurdle number two, and the last hurdle is this. Isn't that mean of God then? If exclusivity is a thing, if Jesus is the only way, right? And and, and if Jesus is that, and maybe it's not incredibly arrogant, maybe we all have to make authoritative claims. We've got to pick some authority to follow. Um, if, If Jesus is the only way, isn't that really mean of God? Isn't that not fair? Why would God do that? Why would God create a narrow path if he cares about us, if he cares about creation, if he cares about people? The 1040 window is a window uh, geographically in our world um, that, that talks about the nations that are the least accessible, that the gospel is the least accessible to, right? It's those nations that a lot of those world religions I listed off earlier um, are predominant in, right? And so that area of the world is this area that, you know, I mean, somebody could easily get born into a community that the gospel is not around every corner. They're not hearing scripture. They don't have access to a Bible. They don't have access to Christian community or, or, or the name of Jesus. So what do we do with that? Does that make God unfair? And, and do we want to worship a God who would feel that unfair? Let me unpack unfairness. And then we're going to go back into worship. Because I think a proper understanding of unfairness should actually lead us to Deep, deep worship. And here's what I mean. There is a massive difference between a man-centered universe and a God-centered universe. None of this, none of Christianity 
None of Christianity and the Christian faith is going to work, is going to fit in your life if you have a man-centered universe. Because inherent within Christianity is the idea that we, me, you are not the center of the universe. God is not a side piece, a side hustle, a category in my life to help me find peace or to help me achieve what I want to achieve or to help me get to the next step. God is not an accessory for me. I believe that he is the creator and my world, my universe should surround him, should float around him, that he is king, that he is king, that he is God and I am not. And so the entire maturity of the Christian life, the sanctification process, which is the idea of Christians maturing should be an exercise, a daily exercise in me waking up saying, I am yours. I am yours. I don't belong to myself. You saved me. You adopted me. You have produced fruit in my life, which is love and joy and peace and all of these things that you're bringing through my eternal soul. You're restoring. You're, you're doing all kinds of things in my life, not because I earned them, but because of my adoption as your son and my proximity to you as my father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My life is about you. And that doesn't just mean because I'm a pastor, vocationally my life is about you. No, it means as a banker or a student or a lawyer or a teacher or a nurse, my life is about you. My life is about you. You sit on the throne. I'm designed to revolve around you, to be in your courts, to bring you glory. In fact, my life is most satisfying. You are designed to be most satisfied in your life when you are bringing God the most glory with your life. That's this beautiful thing. And so the idea of a man-centered versus God-centered universe is going to play heavily into this idea of what's fair. Because if it's man-centered, well, then there should be some entitlement. If God is here for me, well, then what's going to easily crop up is this entitlement of, okay, God, fix me or heal me or do this for me. It shifts everything. The reality is, if I believe this, I don't want what is fair. We don't want what is fair. Because what is fair, what we really mean by that is just, right? We don't want justice. Because if we believe this, then justice is we need to pay for our sins. And the reality is you don't want to pay for your sins. I don't want to pay for my sins. Because the penalty for my sins is great and is eternal. And so I didn't get what is fair. I got what is gracious. Talk about fairness. The God of the universe hung his son on a cross because he cared about his people. And I think there's a a categorical shift that has to start taking place specifically around this doctrine of Jesus being the only way and this idea of fairness. I I remember, and I've told this story again before, but I remember it was actually after a renovate. It was years ago in the old chapel. And I remember somebody came up to me afterwards and they were really wrestling with this doctrine. And they said, hey, I got a hard time worshiping God because it just feels like, what the heck, right? If God is all powerful, why why didn't he save everyone, right? What what is he doing? Um, And they specifically told the story of, let's say you're in the desert and you're in a dune buggy and you're driving through the desert and you've got all these water and rations and you come across somebody stranded in the desert. Why wouldn't you save that person, right? Why wouldn't you just inclusively invite everyone that you can save into saving if God's that powerful. Why wouldn't you just say, hey, hop on in, man. Let me bring you to salvation. And I I thought that was a really interesting illustration. But what it is, is it's a 
It's a backwards focus. It's not through a biblical lens. It's through a very man-centered lens. And what that story does, and so often when we get hung up on fairness, it's because we think we're the damsel. We think the world is the damsel. Well, why wouldn't God save the damsel in distress if he has the ability? If he's the shining knight, why wouldn't he save the damsel? The reality is we're not the damsel. The reality is we're the terrorist. Right? A better illustration is the idea of a terrorist in a mall who's just running through a mall and attacking people and throwing grenades and limited to and, and shooting up the food court and right, doing awful things, right? And the SWAT team gets there and they line up the little red dot on the guy and he absolutely should be taken out. He's destructive. He is, he is vile. He is making it about himself, right? They get the red dot and the captain says, take the shot, take the shot. I got a clear shot. As he pulls the trigger, Jesus jumps in front of the bullet. Right, like that's a better scenario of what's happening. I'm an enemy of God, the God of the universe. I live my life in my default sinful setting with my middle fingers to the air saying, I want to be king. I want to be God. From Adam in the garden when he ate the fruit and said, I want to be like God. To me now in 2020, I want to run my life the way I want to run it. And I want it to be about me and my satisfaction and my glory. How offensive to a holy and gracious God. It's unfair, but it's unfair. Why would God do that? Why would God save us? Why would God choose to look to a people who is constantly betraying him and say, I love you? Why would God look at us who wander constantly away from him and say, you're still mine. I still have forgiveness. I will still pay your debt. I will continue to pay your debt. And we keep racking up the same charges. And he says, I love you, I love you, I love you through Christ. It changes how we see it. That doctrine, properly seen, should actually produce more worship. More worship. So where do we go from here? Here's where I want to close. If you're here or you're listening and you are in that camp of, man, I'm just still not sure. Right? And this is maybe an area of theology that you've really wrestled with and been thoughtful on. Praise God. I love that. I love that you're here. I love that you're listening. I love that you're wrestling. There are good answers. Keep digging in. There's whole, there's, there's warehouses full of books written on this specific topic. Keep digging in. He will reveal himself and he is good and he is worthy. I promise. But food for thought, let this be food for thought. Continue to step into it, right? Don't let the hypocrisy of Christians turn you away from it. Continue to step into this God, right? Um, and then let's say, also, um, let's say also you affirm this theology, right? Let's say you're here or you're listening and you say, yes, this is theology maybe I've thought about before, but I checked that box and I do believe he's the only way. My question for us then, you then, is do you live like he's the only way? Are we really living in a way that the world around us would say we care about the lost, that he is the only way? Am I hedging my bets? Do I say what I say on a test? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is the the way to God. But the way I live my life, I find my satisfaction in anything else I can find. And then on Sundays and Wednesdays and occasionally when it's convenient or when I feel really low, then I'll come back to him and, and get more Jesus. But I've really turned him into just a category, just an accessory in my life. And so theologically, I understand that, but I don't live like I believe that. I think my hope for you and for us would say, man, would your faith increase? Would you you really wrestle with this doctrine to not just be head knowledge that you nod your head to, but a lifestyle of worship to say, thank you, you are my only way and you are all I need. Would I worship you? Would I know you? That we wouldn't be entitled in those ways, but instead we would say, God, I was wretched. 
God, I was blind, but you humbled yourself. You, you came and you hung on a cross and you bled and you died for me. You shed your blood for us. That we as believers, those who believe that doctrine, live a life of gratitude. That's constantly professing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you did. Let me pray for us. Father, um, this is a weighty and a heavy topic, Lord. Um, but God, I pray we'd be able to wrestle with it honestly. Um, I pray that uh, you'd meet us in our wrestle. I pray you'd meet us in our thoughtfulness of this. Um, I pray you'd just show up in sweet ways, God. Would we be reminded of your gospel? Would we be reminded that you are the only way? The uniqueness that, that we can't earn our way. God, that, that bothers me in ways because I want to control things. I want a system. I want a ladder I can climb. I want something I can wrap my hands around like every other theological system out there. But God, you say that we're not called to climb, we're called to surrender. God, when I look at Christ, what you did for me on that cross, God, I can surrender to that. I can surrender to that. Your kindness, your grace, mercy for broken people. Thank you, God. Help my heart to believe that. For my friends in this room and listening who are really thoughtfully wrestling intellectually, God, meet them in that place. Would you encourage them to keep asking good, hard questions, to get around Christians, for, for Christians in this room, to keep asking hard questions, not be afraid of questions, to not be afraid of saying, I don't know, let's go research it together. Let's go meet with this God and learn more about him. Because God, as we lean in, as we ask hard questions, as we dig deep, our worship should erupt as we see you more for who you really are, not a safe God that we can keep in a box, but for who you are, uncomfortable at times, but so worthy of our worship. Meet us in this place. Do what only you can do for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. We hope today's message was impactful and God used it to be part of the transforming work he wants to do in your life. Look, our desire is that this isn't just a resource you would listen to, but that this is really a community you would belong to. If you have any further questions, you just want to talk or need prayer, reach out to us. Our contact info is on the website, renovateftw.org, or connect with us on our social media, at RenovateFTW, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.